Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that lets you contribute to my work, and that'll help keep the podcast going and light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a Cash App profile for the show, so one-time contributions can be sent there, and all of this information is also listed in that show notes page. If you contribute at least $4.99 per month, you're eligible for membership in the Ward Republic, which gets you one phone call with myself and the other Ward Republic members each month. And support monetary freedom today and head over to our new sponsor at www.defythegrid.com to purchase your gold backs. I have an affiliate link in the show notes page as well. And if you use it, I will get a 1% commission. So click on my link in the show notes page and help fuel monetary decentralization today. And don't forget to download the MeWe app and search for me so we can be friends and then I can add you into the show's private MeWe group so we can have sane and rational discourse around historic and current political topics. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started with today's topic. All right, so today we are going to begin the end of our, at least the end for now, of our critique of the corporate form. And this is going to be kind of like the culmination of all the episodes we've done on this And what we're going to do is we're going to break this down into a series of three episodes, and we're going to cover a speech from R.L. Dabney. Um, You guys will know I started this little series, I guess, or mini-series within the podcast with an essay from R.L. Dabney, so I felt it was only right to conclude with with another speech from R.L. Dabney. So that's what we're going to do, and each episode dedicated to this, there's going to be three of them, uh, each episode dedicated to this is going to be covering a specific phase of his speech. So in today's, he's talking about the, basically, concept of the union that they understood and inherited in his generation versus what they are bequeathing to the next generation, which is, in his opinion, going to be the first generation of the New South. So that's going to be the... Primary focus for the first phase of this speech, and then as we get into phases two and three, he's going to have different points of focus that he wants to talk to this generation about. And honestly, I'm glad that he left us this speech. I mean, it's so interesting to me reading through some of this. It's like he foresaw what was going to happen, which I guess to a certain point he did. But he specifically within this speech, when we get to this section, there's a, a spot where he talks about how certain principles are eternal, and he wants future generations of Southerners to be able to draw upon the wisdom of their forefathers, even if their forefathers suffered defeat. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And this is a speech that Dabney gave at the annual commencement of Hamden Sydney College on June 1st, 1882, before the Philanthropic and Union Literary Societies. So he says, young gentlemen of the philanthropic and union societies and ladies and gentlemen of the audience, you will credit my expression of sincere embarrassment at this time when you consider that I am attempting a species of discourse somewhat unwanted to a preacher of the gospel, and yet more that I am placed here only as a species of dernier resort. We all had hopes that another gentleman would represent the two literary societies better fitted to entertain and instruct this assemblage. But disappointment left the place at a very late period unfilled, and we were threatened with having this important part of our literary anniversary left a mere blank. I stand here, therefore, in the formula of your exercises, 
very much in the place of that infinitesimal quantity, which the algebraist places equal to zero in his equation without appreciable error. This fact might have led me to decline the untimely effort, but we who are passing off the stage of public action owe a sympathy to the young who are entering on it, which would forbid our withholding any service or evidence of affection they may ask of us. It is this which has forbidden my saying no to your request. In your case, there is another weighty consideration which ought to reinforce your claim on us for a deep sympathy. This is found in the momentous difficulties of the arena on which the young men of the coming generation are called to act their part. And yet another thought crosses the mind. Ought the knowledge of the difficulties which are before you to stimulate the expression of our interest? Or ought it to dictate a modesty which should silence us as advisors of our young countrymen? For it is by our hands that these cruel conditions of your life problem have been transmitted to you. The heritage of freedom which our fathers left us, we have not been able to bequeath to you. And so just to pause for context, what Dabney is saying here, and he's going to reveal this more throughout the remainder of the speech, but what Dabney's saying here is that he feels that the older men of the last generation of the Old South have a moral obligation to try to help guide or at least give some wisdom to the generation of young men, the first generation of the New South. And so that that's kind of what his hesitancy is here. He's basically asking a rhetorical question. Should we sit, should we of the older generation sit idly by and watch you struggle or should we lend what wisdom we can? And back to the speech. As memory reverts to my youth, when I stood where you now stand, it presents a contrast which might well seal my lips with grief and shame. Then my honored father and grandfather were just going off the stage the one a soldier of the first war which won our independence, and the other of the second war which confirmed it. And so here he's talking about the revolution or the American War for Independence and then the War of 1812. Both examples of that citizen soldiery which had been the glory of America, plain, simple, unpretending, but incorruptible. And Virginia then stood with untarnished escutcheon, poor indeed from the burdens of two wars and the legislative exactions of her partners in the Union, clad mostly in homespun, but still the great and unterrified commonwealth, which extorted this tribute from Cornwallis in his hour of victory, the mother of statesmen and states, whose humblest citizen knew no master except God and the law of his own state's election, whose banner had never trailed before a conqueror, by whom no federal obligation had ever been dishonored, and no creditor ever defrauded of one penny, with a credit as solid as gold in the emporiums of trade and the firm and prudent mediator between federal power and the too impatient spirit of her sisters. Thus did our fathers transmit Virginia to our guardianship, the warrior virgin, like the palace Athene of Phidias, as she stood before the Parthenon, flashing the radiance of her golden helm and full-orbed shield across the Saronic Gulf, and Agena and Salamis to far-off Megara and Argos, but we, vi nobis miserimus, deliver her over to you, not in this condition, but rather a pallid, woeful widow, deflowered by subjugation, dismembered of her fair proportions, her weeds besmirched even by her own sons, virtually governed by the votes of an alien and barbarous horde, forced into her bosom by her late partners, now her ravagers, against her constant protest. As I remember this, I ask myself, should not men who have so failed in their charge who have suffered the glorious heritage of their fathers to be so marred in their hands, cover their faces and be silent.
And so just to pause here. So the first episode we did on Dabney talking about the philosophy regulating private corporations, um, y'all will notice I, I actually read this particular passage in that episode, and I did that for a reason. So Dabney, again, just to give y'all some context on him as a man, he never, ever recovered from the South losing the war. So he was a Presbyterian minister. He was an aide-de-camp to Stonewall Jackson. He never got over the fact that the South lost the war. So I just wanted to read this passage again. Um, this is going to be all one big speech, but I just wanted to read that passage again to sort of reemphasize that he never recovered from what he thought was a righteous cause being ground into the dust. And back to the speech here, he says, But our sons, whom our weakness, or else our hard fate, has left disinherited, seem not to be ashamed of us. They ask us, they encourage us to speak. This is my apology for presuming to speak today to the New South and of the New South. And our apology is this, that in the endeavor to save the liberties transmitted by our fathers, we did what we could. And in proof of this justifying plea, we can point to the forms prematurely bent and the heads whitened by fatigue and camp diseases. We can point out the empty sleeves, the wooden legs, and Confederate graves so thickly strewn over the land. Our apology is, again, that while we were contending for the rights and interests of the civilized world, nearly the whole world blindly and passionately arrayed itself against us. Such was the strange permission of providence that we, while defending the cause of all, should be slandered and misunderstood by all. And notice there he did not mention slavery. But why should I say this fearful dispensation was strange when we see that from the days of the Christian martyrs until now, mankind have usually resisted and sought to destroy its true benefactors? So it was. We had the world against us. There was, after all, little exaggeration in the description which the Confederate soldier at Missionary Ridge, with the humorous exaggeration of his class, gave of his own case. He said that no misgiving of our final delivery had ever disturbed him until the early dawn of that final disastrous battle, as he was standing post on the advance picket on Lookout Mountain. Just when the stars were beginning to pale before the gray dawn, and all nature stood hushed in expectancy of the coming king of day, the solemn silence was broken by the words of command rolling from the Yankee headquarters over the forest in these terms. Attention, world! Nations, by the right flank, forward! We'll end a line of battle! Yes, we had the world against us. And this is one item of proof for that fact which completes our apology for failure. Subsequent events have shown we were attempting to defend and preserve a system of free government which had become impossible by reason of the change and degeneration of the age. We did not believe this at the time, for we had not omniscience. Nay, it was at that time our duty not to know it, or to believe it. Even as it is the duty of the loyal son not to believe the disease of his venerable mother mortal, so long as hope is possible, not to cease efforts to his love, and not to surrender her to death while love and tenderness can contest the prize. We had received this free government from our fathers, baptized in their blood, and we had received from them the sacred injunction to preserve it. We had witnessed its beneficent results. Of all men, it was our duty to feel ourselves most bound by the maxim of the Roman Republican, non fas est de republica desperare, they must not be hopeless, republic. The changes had silently taken place, which rendered our father's system too good for those who were to execute it. And yet it would have been treason to truth and right 
for us to despair of the better possibility until the impossibility stood sternly revealed. Thus the task which duty and providence assigned us was to demonstrate by our own defeat after most intense struggle the unfitness of the age for that blessing we would fain have preserved for them. Hard task and hard destiny to attempt the impossible. Nevertheless, it is one which has often been exacted by a mysterious providence from the votaries of duty. Yet it gives us this hard consolation. Inasmuch as the survival of our old system had become impracticable, failure in the effort to preserve it might be incurred without dishonor. And there is this concurrence in the justification of the Confederates and the justification to which you, the New South, will soon have to appeal for your actions, that both apologies are correctly drawn from the same premise. Because the old free system has become impossible for your times, you will, therefore, be justified in living and acting under an opposite one. There will be an apparent paradox in this. You shall applaud and revere your fathers for their determined opposition to forms and principles which you shall receive and even sustain. But the paradox will be only in semen. Your justification will be found where we find ours. And the fact that the institutions, which it was our duty to defend because they still existed, it will be your duty to surrender because you have learned by our innocent calamity that they cannot hereafter exist. A new South is inevitable, and therefore it will be right for you to accept it in the same way that it was our duty to fight to prevent it. It may be the son's duty tomorrow to bury the dead mother out of sight, whom it was the father's most sacred duty just yesterday to endeavor to keep alive. The government our fathers left to us was a federation of sovereign states. As such, they emerged from the war of the revolution and were recognized by Great Britain. As such, they met in convention to devise a closer union. As such, they debated and accepted or rejected the terms proposed therefore. For some states at first did exercise their unquestioned sovereignty in rejecting the new union. And there he's talking about North Carolina and Rhode Island. By their several and sovereign acts, they created a federal government with limited powers strictly defined and deputed to this common agent certain powers over their own citizens to be impartially exercised for the equal behoof of all the partners. All other powers, including that of judging and redressing vital infractions of this federal compact, they jealously and expressly reserve to themselves or to their people. And so think about the beauty of this. So he's telling the new generation, look, this is what we inherited. We received a union based on a federation of sovereign states, and he, towards the end of that section, he's talking about the 10th Amendment. So they jealously and expressly reserved to themselves or the people. So again, 10th Amendment argument there. But this, again, is based on a long string of unbroken thought. We can trace it back to the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions of 1798. We can trace it back before that to the Suffolk Resolves. We can trace it back prior to that, all the way back to 1607 with the founding of Jamestown in Virginia. So what he's saying here is we had this long, venerable tradition. The war has broken that tradition, but now you must find your own. And throughout the remainder of the speech, what he's going to do is basically say, here are the things I hope you learn from our failure. This is what we did wrong, or, or this is where we failed. Now it's up to you to take what wisdom you can gain from us and employ it to your own benefit. That, that's kind of the whole focus of this speech. And he he did not like the concept of a new South, but he did recognize it was inevitable. 
So, and, and again, think about some of the beauty of what he's saying here, that the forms which we inherited were too good for this modern age. And that is very true. A federation of sovereign states never could have accomplished the imperial ambitions that people like Abraham Lincoln had, that people like Teddy Roosevelt had. A federation of sovereign states who were free to check the center never could have accomplished anything like that. So it, it's kind of sad, but but also in a way it's very beautiful that he's basically paying homage to the Old South and again, imparting this wisdom on the new generation and what he calls the new South or what was being called the new South. And back to the speech. To the outside world, they were to be one, while to each other they were to be still equals and independent partners. Again, talking about the states. Each state must be a republic as distinguished from a monarchy or oligarchy, but in all else it was to be mistress of its own internal forms and regulations. The functions of the general government were to be few and defined, its expenditures modest, and its burden in time of peace light. Such was the form of government instituted for themselves by our free forefathers. It was well fitted to their genius and circumstances as communities of farmers inhabiting their own homes, approaching an equality of condition and having upon the whole continent no one city of controlling magnitude or wealth. And so this is going to be our stopping point for today. And when we pick this back up, Dabney, the, the next phase that we're going to cover, Dabney is actually going to spell out six adverse conditions that he felt were introduced during the 19th century and basically made, made the original republic nugatory or the, the original federal republic nugatory. So that, that's where we're going to pick it up on our next episode. Thank you all so much again for your time today and for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time. Please remember, if you find value in the podcast, to consider becoming a supporting listener today. And don't forget to help fuel the Jeffersonian Revolution by using the link in the show notes page to purchase your gold backs. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you so much again for tuning in, and I'll talk to you all next time.